Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in 2 Samuel 7 tonight. Um, thanks for the prayer. Uh, every now and then I work in the phrase dust bunnies into the teaching, and that's part of a way for us to like say hello to people that are overseas um, because we do have some folks that normally are with our Bible study that are not, and we can't overtly say things like hello person's name um, in, because it's going over the Internet. So we try to be cautious about that, but we just want to you know, remind those people that are listening via podcast that we love you and we're praying for you. Uh, And we just pray that you have a great summer. Um, So 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside of a tent, inside tent curtains. And then Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. So we start off, uh, chapter 7 is going to be the Davidic covenant, or the covenant that God makes with David. Um, And the writer gives this topic of the ark and where God's house is going to be a pretty high priority, because it's in the next chapter, we're going to talk about the Philistines again. So it's it's out of chronological order, and that can confuse some people. But the writer of Samuel wants to organize these thoughts together in how they're looking. So we just got done with David moving the ark to Jerusalem, and we're kind of finishing that narrative of now the ark needs a house. And the issue of the ark in David's kingship gets put aside as a single topic by the writer of 2 Samuel. And then we get back to the the history of it. And when we get to Chronicles, it's a a lot more chronological. But when we're in Samuel, it's it's more of a topical history, and they don't worry as much about that chronology stuff. But this becomes an essential chapter in shaping the kingship of David and his relationship with God. Back in, um, uh, way back in Exodus 25, we saw that God asked for a tabernacle, and that tabernacle was a tent. Actually, Zach taught on the tabernacle for us, and the construction of it was one where it could be, it it fit for what God had them doing for a long, for many, many years, 400 years. As these people moved, and as they moved back and forth, the ark would just go with them and travel with them, or I should say, they traveled with the ark. I want to make, <laughs> that's more the right order. They followed the, the Shekinah glory of God, which, was, um, which went along with this ark, and that, that would guide them and show them where to go. Well, now that they have a capital in Jerusalem, last chapter, and they just celebrated bringing the ark there, David's then heart is for giving a house for God. And so we get to that pace. Um, He brings up cedar. Cedar is, even to this day, a really expensive wood. We have a lot more of it because we farm it, but it's still expensive. It's beautiful. We don't do construction out of cedar normally. We do it out of pine. Um, It's aromatic. We line chests with cedar because it smells delicious. Make little cedar eggs and throw them in with our clothes. Cedar closets. It's also something that's fairly permanent. Cedar is really rot resistance. It's kind of a pure wood. So you don't really even need to treat cedar. You can just sand it, and it continues smelling good. So this, the, the properties of cedar are, are obviously ones that God has made, 
or put there um, for a reason. And David's talking about his house of cedar, which is a way to say, I live in a palace. I live in a really expensive house, but God's still living in a tent. Um, <laughs> and of course, he goes to Nathan here. Nathan's a new prophet, just an incidental mention of Nathan. He just shows up right now. Back in 1 Samuel 22, the prophet with, that was with David was a guy named Gad. So apparently Gad has died and Nathan, or, or retired, and Nathan has be, now become David's prophet. And he's going to be a prominent character moving forward, but the way he's introduced is pretty like nonchalant as we get in here. And, it, and he says, he goes to David and says, I want to build this house for God. Nathan says, yeah, do it. We can all see God's with you, so... Do whatever you want to do, because clearly what's in your heart is what the God's looking for. Um, but Nathan doesn't exactly go and consult with God. So even God's prophets sometimes make mistakes, and I find that fairly grace-filled. Um, but he's making a, he's presuming that, that anything, because David's in the right place and doing some of the right things, that everything God, David wants to do is the right thing to do. And, I, and, and honestly, it's an interesting chapter because we're going to get out of this the next stage of God's plan for the planet Earth, it comes out of this moment. David wants to do then by building a house more than what God's asked him to do. God's asked him to do this set of things. He's, he's successfully moving forward on those, and then he wants to add something to it. This is a really good sentiment. God asks for offerings in the Old Testament, but he also has a condition for like extra offerings when people want to do more than what's asked of them. So David's heart to do more than what's asked to him is actually a pretty good heart. And he double checks it with Nathan, which should be his like way to communicate, one of his ways to communicate with God. So David's kind of doing a lot of the right things here, at least under the law. But he's not supposed to presume, and he writes about that when he writes Psalm 19, verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. So David even writes about this idea of like, I get super excited and in my excitement, I can jump a little too fast and a little, and a little bit in the wrong direction. And for people that are like David in this regard, like I think this is a personality type, that exuberant kind of personality sometimes gets too exuberant or jumps, goes a little bit faster than God wants them to go. And that's not necessarily a sin, um, especially because David's like checking with Nathan. He wants to be held in check. Nathan says, the Lord is with you. That's clearly true. And he sees David's heart's in the right place. So Nathan just gives a knee-jerk answer. Um, but even Nathan's correctable. Verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Like rhetorical question, would you build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, I, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In short, God's saying, I never asked for that. I've never asked you to do this. So even these really good, well-meaning plans, the Lord interestingly goes to Nathan, not to David, because Nathan's the one that gave an answer to David, speaking on behalf of God, and he misspoke. He said something he should have, shouldn't have said as a prophet. Would you build me a house? This is the most graceful no that I think we're ever going to see in the Bible, because God knows the heart's in the right place, 
but just going a little bit faster than it should be. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. We shouldn't miss this language here. When a prophet says, thus says the Lord, that's actually biblically commanded by God. He tells his prophets to announce that they're speaking on behalf of God, which Nathan didn't do in the first few sentences. So when, when we speak for God, when we say things like the Bible says, or Jesus says, or the law says, when we're announcing that we're speaking on behalf of the Bible, that's a really important moment. And it's something that we should be doing when we think we're representing God, we should say so. Well, God says this, the Bible says this. And in that sense, then, if people disagree with it, we have a responsibility to accurately present what's in the Bible, but then other people have a responsibility to deal with what's been said in the Bible. And I think that this is, I just think it's kind of neat that this, we get that language because God tells the prophets to use it. You go tell David, thus says the Lord, announce yourself. So God's answer is in part, verse six, I haven't dwelt in tents. Verse six, it's been a long time. Verse six, I have moved around in a tent. And I love this. We serve a God that doesn't need garnishing. He doesn't need the trappings. He never has. And we see it right here in the Old Testament. God is greatness, but he doesn't need to be decorated by humans. In fact, that's almost belittling. And you think of like the temple of Zeus or the temple of Athena, like the way in which people would build temples to gods and then decorate them and make them as elaborate and ornate as possible. I like the fact that God doesn't need that to happen for him to be great. He's great with or without the building. He's been great for 400 years and hasn't had a building. So wherever I have moved in verse 7, again, he's getting the order right. Wherever God moves, the tabernacle moves with him. Wherever God moves, Israel moves with him. And that they're following him, not the other way around. And this is part of what God's trying to correct David on. I don't need your house. I'm already leading you. And I have been leading you. Since you got out of Egypt, I've been leading you. So that verse 7, like, all the time I've never asked for a house, and I don't need one now. So it's not an indiscretion for David to do this, but it's not something God's asked him to do either. And there's a typology here. We don't don't build ourselves into acceptable houses for God. God builds us into acceptable representatives of God. Does that make sense? Just as a, a, a typology of the, the relationship. The, David's not doing anything wrong here. It's just that he's not impressing God because God doesn't need it. right? And God does get a temple built. He just has Solomon build it. And this is where we're going to see him do that. So in saying no to David, he also builds up the correct theology for David that he should understand. Verse 8, and in that, he moves us forward. The entire Bible moves forward one step on the revelation of God's plan for humanity. Verse 8, now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, again, thus says the Lord, I took you from the sheepfold as a shepherd, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel, and I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. David, I don't need a building from you. In fact, I've done everything for you. There's nothing you can do for me that I haven't given you in the first place. What a beautiful thought. Again, there's nothing we can do for God that he needs us to do. He's done everything for us. Anything we could do for God is just giving back to God what he gave to us in the first place. And to get that, I think, right puts us on a nice foundation doctrinally. Um, 
Here we say, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. The word hosts there implies not just earthly armies, but heavenly armies too. All sorts of, all powers and principalities, hosts. Uh, the Lord is the, the Lord of everything that's on the earth. So God reminds David he's with him no matter what. And in fact, verses 8 through 9, I'm with you and have been with you. I raised you from the shepherd role to the king role, and I wasn't in a building when I did that. In other words, God's presence extends way beyond the tabernacle. He met David out in the, in the fields. He didn't meet him in the tabernacle. So God doesn't need the building, A, because that's not what he's restrained to. And God doesn't need David's gifts because he gave, him, he gave David everything in the first place. He could raise up somebody else. So I think that humility that he's teaching David is a really important kind of aspect. He personalizes this from talking about Israel to talking about David himself. Initially, he's talking about, I've taken you from the sheepfold over all Israel, and now he's talking about David as a person. And David, I've been with you, and I will be with you. You don't need to do works for me to make me happy with you. I loved you when you were a shepherd, and I love you now that you're a king. So you don't have to do extra for me. And I think as believers, I, I would hope for those guilt-driven believers, like, give yourself a break. God doesn't need you to do anything for him. And he's the, he's the, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need yours. That said, anything we do for God should be a blessing and a gift. So you're a shepherd, and then God basically flips it around and says, but I've been your shepherd. I've gone with you wherever you've gone. So the language there is paralleled. I took you from the sheepfold following the sheep. But interestingly enough, the shepherds don't always lead the sheep. For the most part, you just follow the flock, right? So David was following beasts around, making sure they didn't get into trouble. And God does the same thing for David. I've been with you wherever you have gone. You're a sheep and I'm your shepherd. David, and again, is this where David starts writing Psalm 23, right? And you see the connection that God makes for David here. And he's made his name great. God lifted up David's name. He doesn't need David to lift up his name. Again, these are pretty simple ideas, but I just love how God is gracefully saying no, and I'm going to bless the heck out of you. Verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord, of Ho the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. David, I don't need you to build me a house. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a house. And Jerusalem's going to become their capital. He's going to hand off Israel as a nation to his son Solomon. And, is, and under Solomon, they'll have a great period of peace. So God's saying this is what's going to happen. So there's work still coming for David. Uh, of course, there, he's going to go on. And there's going to be work after David's gone. And so God's saying there's a big picture here. I'm going to appoint a place for my people. Before a temple, there's going to be a place. And, that, and he's going to enculture Israel into that place. For my people Israel. God turns to David and he writes, these are my people, they're not yours. And, and just this gentle thing. That idea that David should turn his attention. So David, if you've got extra energy at this point, why don't you take care of my sheep? Why don't you feed the sheep? And I, I, just that idea that God's kind of getting to here is that um, I'm going to give them a place where they can and move no more and the sons of witness shall not oppress them. Since that time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I've, called yous to rest, and I've caused you to rest from your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. In other words, I, th I 
think God's saying, like, I, let's focus on just establishing Israel right now and taking care of what's there. Matthew 25, 40, the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say to you, insomuch as you've done unto the least of these of my brethren, you've done it unto me. David, if you've got extra energy because you have peace, serve the people around you. Take care of those people. Help to build the culture of Israel. Help them to establish and get settled. Don't worry about the temple building. Um, Chronicles tells us why God is doing this at this early stage in David's kingship. God doesn't tell him why, because maybe David wasn't ready to hear it yet, but we'll, the, the why comes later in another study. I'll, I'll share it here later in this one. Very gentle teaching about God's eternal nature. God has a plan. Israel's part of it. God has a peace that he's going to allow for a season, and Israel's going to benefit from that. So God's desire here isn't to be served, but instead to serve or give this care. And here's the intention. like God receives the gift because he knows David's heart. He just doesn't need it right now, and it's not part of his plan. So this establishing of Israel is the plan. Also, the Lord tells you he will make you a house. You want to bless me, David? I'm going to bless you instead because I love the heart that you're coming at this with. Um, the word house there, I'm going to make you a house. In the Hebrew, that's bahith. It's used 54 times as household, implying a community of people of biological connection. So this idea that it says house here in a singular, it, it really in the Hebrew has much more of a context of a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty, David. So, uh, so that's what he has in mind for David right now. David's life then is about a much larger plan that God has and it has nothing to do with the tabernacle. And this house is going to last forever. And that's part of this Davidic covenant. When your days, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, read, when you die, David, when you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. You hear the re repetition of the word forever in this passage? According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. David hears this directly from God. He gives that message directly to David, and they start writing it down. Because when God speaks, the Jewish people have learned we write it down, and we, we collect it on scrolls, and we keep it a record of what God says. So this is what's called the Davidic covenant. It's important because it's a narrowing of the larger covenant that we've had throughout the Bible. So starting with Adam and Eve, where when he talks to Eve, he says there's going to be a seed that's born from you. The word seed gets pulled out in verse 12. There's a seed that we're looking for, and that seed is a human being that's going to be born unto a woman. It doesn't say that seed will be born unto a man. So there's an important distinction there. And then that, that promise gets narrowed from, with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, Israel's going to be the nation from which that seed comes. So they stop tracking all the nations of the world, a la Genesis, and they start tracking just Israel and what's going on with Israel. So they keep their focus biblically on that. Then you get a Gentile, Balaam, in Numbers 24, saying, verse 17, I see him, but not now. now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. So even the Gentile 
prophets are confirming that out of Israel is going to be this special person that shows up. There's going to be a scepter. In other words, with Balaam, we learn that this seed is going to have, be somebody that has power exhibited. They're going to be a very powerful person. With Jacob, Genesis 49, that scepter or power won't depart from Judah. So it narrows from Israel down to Judah as a tribe. So now Judah becomes the thing we look at. David knows all of these passages because he's studied them. He's written them down, I hope, because that was his job before he became king. Like He should be scribing out his own, his own version of the Torah. So it's fairly significant and a turning point in the Bible that now that we've narrowed it from Judah to just David's line, that's a lot of families in Judah that don't have to get tracked anymore. So that makes it a little easier on the little Jewish record keepers in the tabernacle. So as we see this throne get established, we see in verse 12 that there's a seed that speaks of offspring that's going to come from David. That word seed can be either singular or plural. So when we're talking about a dynasty or a household, that seed could be referring to just Solomon as a person, and I think it does in this passage, but it could also be referring to all of David's descendants, which I also think it does in this passage. Like a true prophetic passage, it's both the immediate and the long term. And as the immediate comes true, suddenly as scholars of the Bible, we watch for the long term very carefully. So contextually speaking, this is about a dynasty, and I think that's how David would have heard this when it was spoken. It says it will come from your body in, in verse 12, and that's the establishment of the kingdom, right? And he shall build a house for my name. That's kind of talking about Solomon and what's going to be happening with Solomon as he builds this temple, right? We're not, and, and again, to read these accurately, I don't think verse 12 and verse 13 are talking about Jesus. I think they're very particular to somebody who's going to build a house, right? That, but then people can say, but Jesus built a house too. He built a, a church and our body becomes a temple. And you're, you're going, okay, yeah, so there is a little bit of crossover. Um, that said, specifically they mentioned Saul in this passage, that Saul was taken away and God's not going to do that with David's line. So David will have seeds or descendants that sin horribly. We will see some pretty rotten kings. But God never removes himself from the kingship because he's made a promise he wouldn't do that to David's household. He didn't make that promise with Saul, and when he lifted his hand, Saul kind of went nutty, and the kingship just got handed over. And it was We've just gotten through those chapters. So the building of this house is both, both the family of David, but also specifically the temple that David's brought up with God in the first place. In context, we need to understand that's there. There is a typology here that I also think we need to be aware of. And that is before we build anything for God, God has to build us. Before David builds God a house, God's going to build David the house. And I think, spiritually speaking, we can't pull too much from this, but God does work in us, and that's the only thing of value that we have is letting God build us into his temple and to be a representative of God as we meet people on earth. The word forever gets used in verse 13, twice in verse 16. It's used three times in this passage, forever, forever, forever. Complete is the, when you take the three times. It's a completely forever promise, which makes us look at the future beyond Solomon. Psalm 89, 29. His seed will also make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If the throne of David is like the days of heaven, it's not a human throne anymore. There's something spiritual about this throne in that it doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end. It's forever. Because forever isn't just moving forward into the future. Forever in God's perspective also doesn't have a beginning to it. 
So it's timeless. Somebody's going to sit on a throne that will be timeless, right? He shall build a house for my name. <laughs> it's interesting. He's not going to build a house for him, but for his name. Do you see that little twist of wording there? It's not a twist. I think God did this very intentionally. The point of building a tabernacle is not to build the temple for Yahweh, but Yahweh's name. But we know Yahweh already. That gets used in the Old Testament all the time. So when you see a reference to the name, that's the name we don't know at this point in the writing. The name that today we call Jesus or Yeshua, right? So there's going to be a temple built for, a, for this person. Not for God to abide in like the tabernacle, but for the name of God to be established in. This is really significant in that it becomes extremely prophetic fairly quickly. So this could be read as a shift in topic that he first talks about Solomon with the building of the temple, but suddenly there's going to be a place that's built for his name to arrive, the name that we don't know yet, the thing that we have been promised since Adam and Eve, the seed that'll come. John 1, 12, But as many who has received him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Right? So even in the New Testament, we see this reference to the name of Jesus being a significant aspect of God's plan on earth. I just love this. So the temple becomes a place for God, and the location is not yet known, though it looks like it's looking like Jerusalem is going to be a place. Um, and we will see that his name gets established there, but we don't know the name yet. Again, the whole Old Testament should get us to say, who's the Messiah? When is this person going to arrive? How are they going to arrive? And we get these hints throughout the Bible. Verse 14, there's another hint. I will be his father. Okay, this is going to be of David's seed, but God claims that I'm going to be his father when he's talking about his own name. How can you be the father of yourself? How's that even possible? Do you see how that gets moved, like the Trinity starts getting worked in here really quick? If he commits iniquity, Solomon will commit iniquity, and you can read that in reference to Solomon. Even though Solomon screws up, I, we're going to do the book of Ecclesiastes, God's still going to bless Solomon and be with Solomon throughout his whole life. Notice the word if gets used in that passage. I think this is really important. It also applies to Jesus, where he gets tempted in the wilderness. If he commits iniquity, but he never does. So then the rest of the sentence isn't necessarily applying to Jesus. It's very precisely worded. Because he accepts God's guidance, we have the Proverbs from Solomon. We have the Song of Solomon from Solomon. Ecclesiastes gets written. Solomon's going to compose large portions of the Bible because God's going to stick with him even through his iniquities. And I think this is really impressive. There's a special relationship God's promising David's seed. And there's going to be mercy in it. First uh, Chronicles 17 has, puts a focus on the Messiah. But in this particular passage, the only thing we get is this if word that's thrown in there. If this is messianic, then it's literal, or it can be a literable passage. Verse 12, then, from David, this man is God's own. There's an unconditional promise. And then verse 15 says, by my mercy, the word there is loving kindness, because I adore and love and I'm kind to people at the same time. Because of my mercy shall not depart. So God, never, God didn't really punish Saul. He departed from Saul. And that's where we get that idea of how God interacted with Saul. But in this case, he won't depart from Solomon or any of um, this, this promise that he's making to him. God keeps his end of the bargain. Verse 13, I will establish the throne. 
uh, not David or Solomon's throne, but the throne, the throne that will be an eternal throne. I'll establish the throne. There's an immediate uh, aspect to this, and then there's this long-term promise of the throne of David. And, and we call it the throne of David, and it's the throne. Interesting. The throne then exists as long as David's descendants are around, whether or not um, they're ruling a nation called Israel. So there's still a throne of David even after they go off to Babylon. There's this royal order that is the seat of David, and the throne then is bigger than even the nation's sovereignty. Until somebody sits on that throne that's eternal, then that promise is still in waiting, and we're still holding on to that. So David's line will sit on the throne for 400 years. It's an honor for David's family to be able to do that, and then the line gets cut off, and it becomes a stump. Jeremiah 36.30. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This is right as they're going into Babylon, and God says this to Jehoiakim, who's, one of, who's on the throne of David. He's David's descendant. He shall have no one sit on the throne of David. But the throne continues, even after Jehoiakim doesn't get to sit on it anymore. So nobody's going to, so the throne sits vacant, but the throne continues to exist. This is part of the Davidic covenant. It's what he's promised him. This creates a stump in the family tree. But the family, the roots in the tree still go deep. There's still something there. And there's still life in there. Have you ever seen a tree that gets cut off, but a year later all the sprouts pop up around it? Listen to Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a, from, forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of the roots. So yes, the kingship's going to get cut off. They're going to spend some time in Babylon. And then out of that time when there's no kingship, right, the Greeks take over, and then the Romans take over, but the line of David's still there, and someone will rise up to sit on the throne once more. So you get this sense, but all of this, again, is part of God promising an eternal throne that's beyond finite human beings that someone's going to sit on. God made the promise before cutting off the stump. I just think that's great. So even as he's about to withdraw the nation status, the sovereignty of Israel, he's making a promise to that king of Israel that his promise is going to endure through Babylon. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute righteousness on the earth. Now this is his name by which he shall be called, the Lord of our righteousness, which is like a bait. It's like, oh, I thought we were going to get the name. We just get a name. Jeremiah 30, 23, 5, and 6. So verse 16 makes two promises. Look at it carefully. David's house and kingdom is going to be established. And David will see it. It will be before David that he sees his house get established. He'll see his son sit on the throne. Okay? One of the, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. David's also going to see, because he will be with God, he's going to see Jesus sit on a throne too. So this is something that he'll be able to witness the impact that he's had on history. What a blessing. Like, what an amazing thing. The question now is both of the ancestry of David and the Savior of the world. So at this point, all the priests in the tabernacle, they're going to start tracking all the sons of David, which we've already seen happen in the last two chapters. Like, it becomes very important who David, who David has sex with and who he marries because this promise is now narrowed from the world 
to Israel, to Judah, to David's family. And so we, we continue to move forward in the Bible with this plan A that God has for salvation. That's the Davidic covenant. It just narrows it down to David. So we know the plan of God, but we don't know the name of God until Matthew chapter 1. And I, it's just, I just love how this all falls together in the Old Testament. We don't find out the name. That's the last piece we don't get, that in Matthew chapter 1, he tells everybody the name of God. And his name is Jesus. Or his name is Emmanuel. You know, Luke. Micah 4.5. For all the people walk each in the name of his God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We also know that Jesus is the builder of the house. Hebrews 3. We know that Jesus is the builder of the church, 1 Peter 2.5. You can apply these verses to Jesus fairly easily, right? He builds the church, he builds the house, and he builds that for, for eternity that'll come through. 1 Chronicles 22 explains why God passes on David to build the temple. <laughs> Again, he tells him later, but here's what 1 Chronicles, Chronicles 22 says, you've, spent much, you've shed much blood, and you've made great wars, and you shall not build a house for my name, because you've shed much blood and on the earth is my sight. In other words, God doesn't want to be associated with David's slaughter. Remember, he slaughtered entire villages, women and children. And one way, if you're, if you're anti-Bible, you can read that and go, see, look, God's people killed women and children, and it's horrible. But actually, the consequence of that is David's not going to have the honor of building the temple. And we see that, again, later in David's life. At this point, God doesn't, like, point out David's sin to him. Um, but all that killing that David did has a consequence, and that is the person who did that isn't going to be the person who does this. He's going to have a great distance from that kind of thing, even symbolically. So he slaughtered those Philistines back in 1 Samuel 27, and here we see kind of a consequence of that. Actually, in 1 Chronicles we'll see it. Here we just have God saying very gracefully, no, David, you don't get to build my temple. And he doesn't give David a reason, and in that sense, you've got to respect David for not really asking for one. He's just, okay. And that obedient heart just comes right out. So then we get to David turning around in thanksgiving. You know, again, most people, when God tells them no, they get kind of disappointment, disappointed. David's just happy God's talking to him, right? I'm just glad I know, and, and then I can move forward. Verse 18, then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come in this manner of man, O Lord Lord God. Again, we see another character in the Bible use this phrase, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? On the day of our salvation, I think a lot of us have had that feeling. Who am I, God, that you would come and touch my heart? Why me? All the people on the earth and you suddenly care about my life enough to where I feel you working in my life? Why would the God of the universe care about a speck on the earth like me? And David just has this Man, he wants to do good things for God, and God just says, I'm just going to keep blessing you, David. That's the plan. And David's response then is, well, who am I that I deserve this kind of honor? God's gift didn't, <laughs> may not, David in giving a gift to God is trying to elevate God, but in truth, it's the giver of the gift that is, is the one that is, has the largesse. And this makes God even bigger, I think, to David, that he, the response of the no is that he praises God. Let me say that. I just want to make sure I say this right. David's so impressed with the 
the grace and the bigness of God in doing this that the natural response is praise. God, you're amazing. And, and, and let's say David did get to build the house for God. Then he's doing everything that he thought was appropriate. But when, when God steps it up a notch and actually gives this great honor to David, uh, D- David's proper response and our response when we see the grace of God should be worship and praise. David positions himself as your servant. Don't miss that. Verse 19, your servant, and that he accepts God's no, and as a good servant, there's no hint of disappointment in David's response. There's nothing where he's like, oh, please, God, how come I can't? Why can't I do this? It's just, I'm your servant. If you say no, I I accept your no. Frankly, to think of the work that David doesn't have to do because God doesn't make him do it. Like, I don't know about you, but constructing a building is a lot of work, right? Dwayne would know that. But David's thinking, I'm going to do all this work for the Lord. And the Lord's like, I just don't need the work. So at some level, David's not lazy. Like we know in 1 Chronicles 29, he immediately starts gathering all the materials so Solomon has everything he needs. Right? It's not that David's lazy, but just that idea of, well, this is one major thing David does not have to do. And he gets to prep and serve and help Solomon get ready to do this great work. So even the humility of David, that he doesn't have to be the one in charge of the big great thing, he can just bless the person who will be. The phrase, um, you've talked about my household for a great while to come, David clearly understood the prophetic aspect of what God said to him. Forever, forever, forever. And David responds and and almost kind of mimics that back to God. In in this, the manner of man. In the Hebrew, that's zoth, zoth, Torah, one way to read that then is this, this, the law of man. It, it, just his amazement at God's this, this. It's an emphatic phrase. Um, and, and rhetorically, it's we don't think like this as humans. So God isn't limited to how we think about things. And I just, I don't, just this idea of um, is this the manner of man, O Lord God? That's a, kind of a rhetorical question. Is this, this what you have planned for us, Really? It's just an amazing thing. Verse 20, now what more can David say to you? Again, that's rhetorical. The answer is nothing. There's nothing David can say or do. I think for some humans, that's a frustration almost. I wish there was something I could do or say that would please my God. And the reality is it's our heart that pleases God. It's nothing we do or say, right? It's just who we are and what God makes us into. Now, what more can David say to you? For Lord God, you know your, you, for you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and for according to your own heart, you've done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God want to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name? And to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your own people who you redeem for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, Yahweh, have become their God. <laughs> wow. Okay, this is what praise sounds like, just so if we, if we miss that. And like, this is what praise from the mouth of David the poet comes out like. Like, if I could pray like this, I'd feel really good about myself, right? David is a poet. God's gifted him with that. He's been writing songs for a long time. This is like, you know, like David's ability to express praise in mine is like 
J.R.R. Tolkien's ability to write versus Frank Herbert's, right? One is just beautiful and one is just clunky, right? And I, sometimes when I praise the Lord, I, just, I feel like I'm saying the same thing all the time and it's just clunky. But man, David, he lays it out. So let's go through it. Verse 20, you, Lord God, know your servant. David thinks he knows God and God still surprises him. And I love that about God. He still surprises me. Like, I think I know God, and then something happens, and I'm like, I didn't even begin to know God. The, the expansiveness of God's glory is so large. What a faith, what a relationship that David can say, you know me, God. You know me. Verse 21, for your word's sake. Doesn't, I, I, I love how he works that in. Part of what God has given humanity is his word, the Torah, the Bible. And we have more of the Bible than David did, but he still sees the glory in that idea of like, here's God's word, and our job is to help bring attention to that for people so that it can have glory. Because the more people are in God's word, the more we glory in God. God does all of this to show that he's alive, he's well, and that he cares about people, and frankly, that he knows us. So the idea, the privilege of going in for your word's sake becomes a really important element. Verse 22, there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you. I mean, that's the ticket, right? Boom. Actually, that makes its way into a lot of praise songs. The more you know of God, the more you know of his greatness. It's really that simple. His glory is just incomparable. There's no one that sits beside God or that's an equal to God. If that's the case... There's no one that's alongside God. Again, that's part of where we get the Trinity from. There's nobody besides God. There is God. Verse 22, all that we have heard um, <laughs> has anybody heard of anything greater than God? I mean, just think about the concept of God. Is there anything greater that we've even heard of? Is there anything invented by humans that compares to God himself as an idea? What kind of God does these things? And, you know, oddly, when you look at a lot of false religions, you see a lot of human-invented gods, and they're, they're arbitrary, they're petty. Uh, they don't operate in love. But this God that David's encountering is not a human-made God. There's something distinctly different about this God. Who is like your people? Like, so initially I read that, and I wasn't thinking of Israel, like I had to get to the next couple words. But I'm like, yeah, who's like God's people? Honestly, small little church, Bible study like ours, versus big, huge groups of believers, who's like Christians on the earth? We gather, we study a book, and then we sing songs and we pray, and it brings us joy that we go out into the world with to minister to everybody we know so that we can just add value to everybody's life. How can I bless you? What can I do to serve you? Who's like that on the planet earth? What kind of nuts do that thing? It's not a human invention. It's something distinctly godly and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's beautiful. And David's just praising God because of what he sees in God's people. Look at this amazing thing you've done. Who is like your people? Actually, the word your people there, it's interesting. What, <laughs> let me read the passage here. So, sorry. And who is like your people, actually the word there is different from the, the word that's at the end of the sentence. So there's your people there, and then there's for himself your people. So just looking at both of those, the first one is goi, which means Gentiles, which means any nation on earth. 
who is like your, what goy nation on earth would be one way to read that, is like the your people Israel. And in the Hebrew, that's kind of the literal translation of that. What, what other nation on earth is like the God people nation of Israel? In the Hebrew, there's this, the word am, which means a congregated people gathered together. Israel's an exceptional nation. They always have been. It's the only nation on earth that's twice been formed, and they weren't necessarily formed by human means. Like, honestly, when the United Nations, when Britain just said we're going to release our control of this land and give it to Jewish people, that's the only time on the planet Earth a nation's just been created because humans decided to make a new nation. So God's actually twice formed Israel into a nation, three times if you count Jesus as establishing a nation. But God's people then have become an... Israel's the wall that the waves crash against and shatter. And at the gathering of nations, we're going to see that people, nations will be judged by Jesus based on how they treated the nation Israel. So this idea that nations, that Israel is exceptional, part of where we get that is from passages like this. Who's, there's nothing like Israel on the planet Earth. William Coyne wrote a book called Eye to Eye. It's an interesting book. You may, may or may not agree with Mr. Coyne, but the idea in that book is that every time there's been a, a, a meeting of the nations, to decide how to divide Israel, well, you get this land and you get this land, the nations that have advocated on splitting the land of Israel have actually had major catastrophes. So the, the basic premise of this book is trillions of dollars in insurance money have been spent after these, these summits or meetings to talk about how to split up Israel. Almost like God's trying to tell nations that, that it's not their land to split up. Again, that's... It's a theory, it's a book, it's an interesting book if you want some good summer reading. Um, but it's a really interesting premise that, and he, he's in, I think he just tracks the insurance events of the planet. <laughs> and they're associated within days of these summits that come up. The only nation that's been redeemed, the word redeemed there is to ransom, rescue, or deliver. Literally to pay somebody's debt off. Israel's the only nation that you paid their debt and bought them and made them your own. In Exodus 13, 13, God claims the firstborn sons of all Israel for that payment. And then, he's, and then he, he replaces the firstborn children with a tribe called the Levites as his priests. All he asks for is this service in this. God went to redeem for himself a your people, a your people Israel, to make for himself a name. Why did he do it? So that the rest of the world could see that God was great. That's why he did it to do for yourself great and awesome deeds. God's going to redeem the nation, make a name for himself, and then do deeds in favor of that nation to show the rest of the world. So it's David's replying to God. He's actually saying things, and he's not claiming to be a prophet here, but it's not hard to see through the history of the world how Israel's been pretty special. They're the only nation in the world that when they get attacked, they usually gain land. So go ahead and try to attack Israel and see how that goes for you. It, it historically never really goes well um, for the attackers. The word before we've seen a few times now, it's panim, which means in the face of or up in the grill. Like our dog comes up right into your bubble. Like Dan knows this. You're trying to study the Bible and our dog walks right into your space. That's panim. You can't miss what happens panim before your face. It's unavoidable or something you shouldn't be able to avoid from seeing. That's how Israel is. If you track their history, it should be pretty obvious that there's a God that supports them. There's a, a book that um, talks about the turning points in history. Secular writer. The number one turning point in his, history is when the Assyrians went to wipe out Israel with a massive 
hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and then overnight the soldiers disappear, and historically nobody knows what to do, that the might of Assyria was so huge and so dominant, and overnight they just disappear as a, as a, a force on the planet. What happened? And the reason that becomes the secular writer's turning point is because that would have erased Judaism from the planet and Christianity, two of the major world religions. And you could even count Islam 700 years later that built off of those texts. So all three major world religions would be gone if the Assyrians wiped out Israel under Hezekiah. But they didn't. They just magically disappeared. And they, that account becomes one of the major turning points on earth. Mess with Israel, you've got to deal with God. This reads then as gratefulness from David. He's just astounded that God has made this nation, that he's put David as the king of this nation. Who am I, Lord, that you would do this? Who is your nation that you would love us so much? Right? And we read through the wilderness. These are stubborn people. They're not perfect people. They're not particularly holy people. In fact, you could argue they're the most ornery, stubborn, nasty people on earth by culture, and that's why God picked them. If God can use those people, he can use anybody. Right? So you got that idea. And for, for uh, to not be at risk of being anti-Semite, I'm saying that with all glory for Israel. They are the glory of God on earth because of what God's done through them. Right? Even if you look at the last 50 years, percentage-wise, Israelites account for far more of the Nobel awards in all areas of research and science than any other people on earth. It's stunning what they've contributed, what they've added to the earth. Right now, they're revolutionizing drip irrigation technology. And they're sharing that information with the world, which makes more food on the planet. Think of the blessing that is alone, that one development. Not to mention developments in every major field of science that we have. There's generally people adding and advancing those fields. Um, and that's being contributed to by Israel as a nation. Small little speck of a nation on the planet. Massive impact. And for some reason, we always pay attention to it. It's hard to watch the news for a week and not see Israel be in it at some level. Like, all eyes are on Israel. Like, for some reason, that nation stands out geopolitically. It's in the middle of a lot of the trade routes, always has been. But just the idea of the attention it gets, the contribution it makes, and the way in which nations are blessed or not blessed based on their perspective on Israel. Stunning. It's amazing. God went to redeem them, and there's a reason for what he's going to do, and he's going to do so much more with Israel. This is just the beginning, and we can watch this in our generation and see what's going on. Verse 23, the nations and their gods, the ancient people all had their own gods. There weren't a lot of atheists in David's world. Everybody worshipped somebody, but look at this God that's serving Israel. It's amazing. The awesome deeds that he refers to. What deeds are we going to see God do with this nation that just got established? Verse 25, now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do what you've said. I love that David just repeats what God said. That's all we need to do too. He just enthusiastically wants what God wants. He's after God's own heart. And if we know God's will, we can enthusiastically want that will to be done on the planet Earth. Also, the wording there, don't miss this. You have spoken concerning your servant, who's eternal, or he's talking about David, he's talking about himself, and concerning his house, David's house and family, but also this eternal servant on the family, and establishing it forever, and do what you have said. Lord, go ahead and do what you've said you're going to do. I'm on board with it. 
Verse 26. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. It's interesting that David finds it in his heart to pray this prayer. He doesn't read the prayer. He doesn't recite it. He doesn't mimic it. He doesn't have a prayer memorized. It's what comes out of his heart because God's spoken to him. I don't know how to pray. Then get in the word more. If God speaks to you through his word, it helps us know what to pray for. Like God has a heart to save all the nations of the earth. We should be preaching the gospel in season and out of season. Okay, then we can pray for that. Lord, help me to learn how to preach the gospel. Help me to learn how to share my joy with other people. Help me to be more confident telling people what I'm reading in the Bible. And, how, and what that means to my life. It's what's in his heart that helps him pray the prayer. And it's God's word that has gone into his heart that helps him to pray. And I think that's really an encouraging thought. Verse 27, notice the word therefore. One, pers- one perspective on prayer is that healthy prayer is a result of God speaking to us, not the other way around. That as God speaks to us, then we know what to pray. And sometimes when we don't know what to pray, notice that at the very beginning, God, David goes into his presence. Like David makes, there's a, a shifting of where David's location. And he goes down to the tabernacle to have this. Right? Verse 18, King David went in and sat before the Lord. Sometimes just sitting before the Lord when we don't know what to say, is perfectly appropriate. Sometimes our prayers are just to spend time with God and we don't have to say anything. Then when God speaks to us, then we're inspired to pray. I just... The therefore in verse 27, David's prayer is a result of what God has done in his heart, the work that God's already doing. So just one perspective. We hear God's word. We hear God's promises. That inspires prayer, gratefulness, wonder, and praise. And that's just what comes back out of our heart. So God sends this encouraging word to David, and David's going to use that. Charles Spurgeon says this about this passage. I love this. God sent the promise on purpose to be used. If I see a Bank of England note, it's a promise of a certain amount of money and I take it and I use it. But oh my friend, do try and use God's promises. Nothing pleases God better better than to see his promises put into circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up and say, Lord, do as you have said and let, let me tell you that that glorifies God when we use his promises. God says you're blessed, your child, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. Use it. David claims this promise. He proclaims it back to God. And this is seen as a good and a holy thing. This is so important in his kingship. It's why the writer of Samuel has put this so on the front end of explaining what happens in David's kingship. This is the premise on which we get to know David, is that he has this heart of praise. He does it. His wife just got done yelling at him about being not very kingly. And, his, and, then, and then this interaction comes right after that. You know what? I don't care about being kingly. What he does seem to care about is God's promises and seeing those promises just be glorified. And we get to just get to know David and, and what a gentle soul, what a sweet soul, what a brother in the faith. Like, I can't wait to meet David. 
I don't think David had too many issues with equivocation, right? I don't think David wondered if people wanted to hear about God from him or not. I think he just had a heart of praise, and it was just overpouring. God's nature and God's role has affirmed David's belief in his promises, right? God is worthy of our praise because he's God and he does these kinds of things. Why does God set up Israel for the rest of the world to see? Why does God put you in the lives of everybody you know? Because he has a plan. And it's an honor to be part of that plan. Knowing God's will then becomes the core of serving God's will. This is what fuels David in his kingship. Matthew 6.10, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And pick up on this language. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is coming. This is the book of Matthew, right? It's all about kingdom. We're supposed to pray that that promise comes to be. We're supposed to be in line with God's will on that. And he taught his disciples to pray for the same things he's promised. Verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant. This is the core of what we've covered in the Bible so far. We started with in the beginning God and David has come to almost a virtually the same conclusion. Oh Lord God, you are God. And this is called belief. And it's, it's the core of what's going on in this situation. So then we get to 2 Samuel 8. Um, next week, apparently, because I just have the raw chapter here without any notes. So we'll wrap up early tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word and for the blessings. We thank you for the covenant that you made with David, uh, that you would work through him to bring uh, your name to glory, Lord, that you'd build a house for your name uh, through the seed of David, Lord, and we just appreciate and, and love the promises you've made. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. You built a kingdom with David, and you've promised a new kingdom with Jesus. And Lord, we want to see that kingdom grow we want it to see it happen like on earth as it is in heaven. Um, Lord, we want to see that the name of Jesus is glorified on, to the ends of this earth. It's the command you've given us. And Lord, help us to start as we leave here tonight and go to work and go to school and go out on Monday morning to do whatever you've put in front of us. Lord, help us to continue to proclaim your glory and your name to the fo folks that we meet and know. May they see you in us. Uh, may it not be hypocritical, Lord. May it be authentic and deep down. May our love be abiding because you've loved us first. And may we just reflect that to other people. Lord, help us to have grace and mercy and love. Um, thank you for the way in which you saw through David's failings and used him to establish a throne. Uh, Lord, we bow before that throne. We give our anxiety and our angers and our stresses, Lord, we put that at the feet of Jesus and we give it to that throne. So the power in it and the promises, Lord, that you will make create in us a, a new heart, a clean heart, and you'll renew a right spirit in us. Lord, you've made these promises. We just thank you for those and so be it, Lord. May your will be done and may you do those things in us. Renew us, refresh us, and return us, Lord, to your presence and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.